from socialservice.sg, I am Jingyao, co-hosting today's episode with Isaac. With Elfian and Kage, we have a thoroughly enjoyable and enlightening conversation about the arts and publishing vis-a-vis civic engagement and political participation in Singapore. What does it mean to be challenged with the unfamiliar? How do we provoke more conversation and action through artistic modalities? And how do we make sense of censorship, self-censorship and pushback while accounting for the interdependence of individuals, society and the state? Elfian is a Singaporean playwright, poet and writer and Kage is the editor of Ethos Books, Singapore's leading independent publisher. Kage, I know the... So I'm going to quote directly from Ethos Books and it says you prioritize giving voice to emerging and exciting writers from diverse backgrounds and noticeably you publish books which touch on civic issues, right? So I guess my curiosity here would be how do you decide if something is emerging or someone or some topic is emerging and exciting? And I'm also interested broadly in terms of how diversity might feature in your considerations, right, in terms of publishing. Yeah, I think we have to maybe introduce our position as an independent publisher. When we talk about diversity, when we talk about how we want to nurture young voices, right? The concept of being independent as a publisher is quite central because independence for us doesn't mean we are self-sufficient. We are, of course, still depending on our readership. Mm-hmm but we don't want to be dependent on certain things. For example, commercial trends, commercial pressures. If you're dependent on, say, fats, right, it's so difficult to then be diverse because uh, fats are driven by very mass movements of money and that will, of course, then incline towards certain types of uh, voices and certain types of stories and narratives. So, so I think the fact that we identify as an independent publisher is really putting out that certain values we want to bring forth, they may not belong and sit easily in the commercial market. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think when you say, how do we decide if a writer is in emerging if it's a writer is exciting i think an indicator is the sense of the unfamiliar oh i've not seen that before that is important i think elfian later i'm so excited to hear what you have to say about the arts because isn't that what we live for like you want to be challenged by things that you have not thought about you want to be like be tested by ideas because only then you know what you are familiar with is what you want So that's why diversity is important, right? Because choice makes sense and creates sense. So I think that's really when we think about diversity, we really are really talking about also life choices and to create choices. (laughs) If you don't have choices, how do you even choose? So the interesting thing is you mentioned how we touch on civic issues. So I love what Alfian in WhatsApp you put in your position is that the arts actually is part of civil society. Mm-hmm. So I think for us, right, I mean, like we, we don't go out and say, hey, we want to choose things that talk about civic issues. 
that that are driven by societal concerns. But it really happens that the most important and meaningful things you want to publish, you want to hear, are the things that matter. And invariably, that is something to do with the things around you. And that all comes together. So, so I think it's fortunate lah, because maybe in an alternate universe where things bend towards boredom, right? Then we will find ourselves choosing boring things. <laughs> but this is not the case for us. So I think that's a good start to maybe today, I thought, to shift the limelight to the arts. Come on, Elfian. <laughs> yeah, I, I also just want to add around this issue of independence, right? So Apart from, I, I suppose, independence from certain, as you mentioned, commercial pressures, I think what's also important is a certain kind of political autonomy as well. And when I say that, I mean, I suppose not being dependent on, say, stuff like state funding, mm-hmm. right? Because I do know, because the publishing mm-hmm. industry in Singapore, there is a publishing grant that's being offered by National Arts Council, right? And that's right. they do select and they do have certain guidelines and criteria i have had some of my applications for some of my books rejected before because it was deemed to not tick certain of the criteria there's one criteria which covers what they call alternative lifestyle so that's about like sexuality there's another one that touches on race and religion and there's a third one that talks about undermining the government and government institutions right which is basically i think it's worded so broadly it could just be any kind of government critique so I think, yeah, when we're talking about independent, also independent art spaces, independent companies, independent publishers, that kind of autonomy is something crucial in Singapore. Yeah, that's so true. Because if you are funded by a body that is also specifically interested in only certain narratives, so of course, the ruling party and the government would have to protect its own interests. But I do feel that the concept of interest should be expanded because it doesn't make sense to me for a political body to kind of insulate itself from broader perspectives, which can include criticism because in the long run, it will lead to the degeneration of the very body and also the people it is protecting. So I think that's really something that when funding guidelines are, say, restricting certain types of examinations that are so important, while I feel that we have seen too much of that sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah I completely agree. And, and I remember I was at, a, at an IPS roundtable <laughs> once and someone from the National Arts Council very confidently said that as a stat board, she serves the government of the day. And I felt that was an, an interesting statement for her to make because, because for me, I was, I suppose I was a little bit quiet <laughs> because I was absorbing <laughs> things during that moment. It's one of those things where you suddenly think of only after the meeting was over, right? But a couple of things that I wanted to ask her was, you say you serve the government of the day, but who does the government serve? Yeah. That's the first question. The second question is, is the government also obliged to serve those who do not necessarily, who did not vote for them or who do not necessarily agree with them. Yeah. So I feel your funding policy is really about serving all Singaporeans regardless of political affiliation. Yeah. Right? If you consider this as a kind of a form of social service that will not discriminate against yeah, whatever kinds of political affiliations or ideologies you might have, then actually you wouldn't have those particular clauses yeah, as yeah. part of the funding guidelines. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, well, the, yeah, you go ahead. You go okay. first. Yeah. yeah, no, I just, I think we can go very long the whole day. No. But, <laughs> yeah, but really, I this thing about how we start to see the aggregation of interests. So, for example, in the commercial, it's the same. In the political, it's the same. I think power is a self-serving dynamic. Yeah. And that is the part that it becomes very contrary to power to want to check itself. Yeah. And I'm wondering, so in lieu of such like self like critiquing tendencies, yeah. right? What is the alternative? So so in a way, we have to assume ah, things can't be changed by power itself. So then I think today's discussion opens up because we're talking about art publishing forms of civic engagement that can allow for that but unfortunately also the space can be very much tethered to the ruling power of the day so so i think there must be certain community and funding tied to this community yeah so i'm not sure whether we will be talking about this later yeah but i'll be interested too as well yeah, I mean, the degree of complementarity between what the both of you share, right? Which is what I'm learning. The first big point is something you let us off with, Kage, which is the sense of the unfamiliar, which is the point of publishing and the art to be... Because we tend to go towards things that with which we're familiar. But I guess one of the merits or one of the bonuses of, of being able to choose something that's emerging or exciting is to challenge the reader or the consumer I use consumer broadly, not as a business consumer, but as a consumer of, of, um, of art and publishing, right? So that's one. I think the other one is this notion of political autonomy and choice. So by virtue of challenging mm. folks, giving folks options, you are in a way allowing folks to not just choose, but also decide for themselves what narratives from different narratives. And I think that ties back with what Kage you mentioned, which is power as a self-serving dynamic, right? Where unless it's challenged, unless it's questioned, it doesn't have any interest to see itself disintegrate or to see itself being, to, to see itself change in that sense or so. And so I thought that was a nice kind of segue to think about my next question we had, Myra, which is probably for Alfian, but I'm happy for Kage to kind of jump in as well. Sure. Alfian, you've done so much work across poetry, prose, Place, yeah. but before mm. this recording, when we had a brief chat, you said you are very happy to describe yourself as a political writer, right? Which yeah. ties into what we said mm-hmm. just now. Many of yeah. your works, as listeners will be familiar with, touch on social political issues, which seems like mm-hmm. a very conscious, consistent decision on your end. So, mm-hmm. I kind of want to frame this. It's not that controversial, right? Initially, when we crafted yeah. this question, we thought it was controversial, but based on what <laughs> you and Kage just shared, is it intentional yeah. on your part to kind of provoke more? conversation and action around Singapore mm. with, with Singaporeans around these issues? Yeah. How do I put it though? Because I, I feel that there's also a lot of baggage around this idea that the artist is a kind of activist in disguise. That the artist is kind of like using the art as a vehicle yeah. to proselytize certain points of view and all that. And I, I don't know, I think just growing up in Singapore, this is something that I've always had to kind of reject in terms of what my writing is about. I, I feel that if it's political, it's because I'm discussing things which which are political and not so much that, oh, I, I would like my play to somehow result in some kind of social transformation. 
or it's something that is going to consensitize or will radicalize audiences. Yeah, because I think that there's always that kind of fear in Singapore. And when I say fear, it's specifically coming from the top. I'm specifically talking about state paranoia. Yeah. The idea that an artist could possibly have this constituency. And by having this constituency, you're able to so-called influence the masses, right? And I think this is always like a, a very cold war kind of way of, of looking at what, at what art you know, is capable of, of, of doing. And I think it, it lies on two, for me, quite erroneous assumptions. One, the overestimation of the artist. And the second is the underestimation of the audience, right? So this idea that, that the artist can be so influential, can, can, can be this really charismatic figure where after watching a play, you're just completely fired up and, and then you decide, oh, I'm never going to vote for the ruling party my, my whole life. I've never personally heard of anyone telling me that, oh, I walked out for a play and suddenly, oh, it totally converted me, right? So I, I haven't encountered people that way. And I think audiences are, are intelligent. Our audiences have agency. They're really able to decide for themselves. And for me, a political play is not a political rally. Uh, and for me, the best kinds of political works are those that really examine ambiguities yeah. and contradictions, where at the end of the day, the messaging is never really clear, and which really tries to explore as, as in many sides of an issue as possible. So when I say I'm a political writer, I would say that I'm not a necessarily a partisan political kind of writer. Of course, you can say, okay, reading Alfian's stuff, we can tell where his political orientation is, maybe a bit more left, maybe a bit more liberal. But at the same time, I do think I don't sermonize, or I hope I don't. Because if I do that, then audiences, and these are intelligent, sophisticated audiences, are not going to turn up for my place. I think they are there to hear different sides to, to, to a particular issue and to have their own views challenged as well. Yeah. And that means also hearing from voices across the aisle. Mm. Yeah, I, I actually find that maybe it's because of the way the landscape in Singapore is skewed by political dominance by a party that has not known failure. <laughs> so that's why then the balance is not there. And so if art is to be meaningful, if criticism is to be meaningful, of course, it has to challenge this dominance, right? And invariably, it will become political because you're speaking out of turn. And, and of course, if you decide to then just do things that are supporting the dominant political order of the day, that's not art, that's propaganda. So I can't imagine why artists like Alfian will want to do propaganda art if you have at least a remote chance of doing the one thing that you want to do, which is art. So, so, and because they are challenging the political order of the day, then therefore they are seen to be like, oh, mobilizing people using their art. But really they're just questioning why are things the way they are? I think that's, so the bar in fact has been set too low for them to challenge what is needing criticism, if I may say. Yeah. Right. And I think just for our audience who may not 
necessarily be familiar with Sing Lit, Singaporean authors. Mm. I guess for both of you, a question for both of you would be, what are some examples of Singaporean authors or work that seek to, like you said, raise political issues, challenge the status quo, that sort of thing? Uh, maybe you go with Kage first? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'll start with uh, Raffles Renounced because uh, that's uh, Elfian here as well. This anthology of like reflections and research and essays, right, is edited by Elfian, Faris Joraimi, and Sai Siu Min. So it brings like the concept of freedom to history, liberating history from, say, specific fixed frameworks. Singapore is more than Raffles, I think. So that is like a very good way to think about how books can unsettle the kind of dominant narratives. Yeah. So one book, I don't know, it maybe sound like a advertisement after a while. So <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to go there. But of course, I must uh, say that uh, the recent catalog started with Yuyen's book in 2018. This is what inequality looks like. Then Unkok Ho has been putting out a stream of important writings since then. Cherry and George with Air Conditioned Nation Revisited. Both non-fiction as well as fiction books that, that I think have, for me personally, have been so uh, influential where I think it's been able to insert certain idea into public space and, and to sort of uh, provoke conversations, right? So, so definitely that list, I totally agree with you, Kage. I would also add something like Eating Chili Crab, the Anthropocene, which Ethos Books has, has published. Mm-hmm. This beautiful book, which I think has opened the eyes of many readers towards uh, a lot of climate justice issues. If I may speak about also some works of fiction, I would say something like Jamie Tiang's book, State of Emergency, right? Uh, of course, also Sunny Liu's The Art of Charlie Chang of Chai. Yeah, so this couple. Uh, a couple of nonfiction books for me would even include Lily Zubaida Rahim's book, The uh, Singapore Dilemma, right? Which is the economic and social marginality of the Malays in Singapore. Yeah. So, yeah, there, there are books, I, and I don't know whether it's just peculiar to me, but it is possible to say that there are certain books which have changed my life. <laughs> and I would say Lily Zubaida's book is one of them. Uh, Hong Lisa and, and Huang Jianli's book as well about um, scripting a, a national history really made me start to become very, very interested in history. And then I started producing what I call my series of history plays, right? So there was a play called Hotel, which looked at 100 years of Singapore history. There was a play called Tiger Malaya, which looked at the Japanese occupation. And the most recent one in 2019 was a play called Merdeka, which looked at decolonial uh, history in Singapore. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks for bringing fiction, even poetry as well. Yeah. Actually, sometimes in certain contexts and certain under certain lenses, right, the reading mm. of what is seemingly personal can become political as well. So I mean, I mean, when actually history of amnesia, for example, I think it also speaks to our tendency to erase. Which I feel, so I think poetry and fiction are wonderful ways to also think about how we live our lives, how we organize our thinking. And yeah, I guess I'm curious, you name a lot of really good works, these really pose important political questions and all, but I'm curious, have you ever met authors who say perhaps literature shouldn't get that too political? Kage, you mentioned just now, if 
works of writing don't challenge the powers that be. It might as well be called propaganda, things like that. Have you met authors who think, no, that's not quite right. I'd rather be apolitical. Or for Kage, have you met even other publishers who will be like, oh, you're publishing things that are, for lack of a better word, spicy. You should stay out of it. Yeah, curious about your experience. Uh, Elfin, please share as well later. Uh, I, I am thinking of this particular person. I'll try to make it as anonymized as possible. But this person has stayed away from writing politics because at a very young age, this person was chastised by the father. And the poem was commenting on politics. This person is not from the Singapore writing world. Yeah, but because mm-hmm. we also publish residents who write in Singapore, right? So, so right. I think there are certain reasons why people don't want to write about certain things. And I don't feel that as a publishing house, we want to begrudge anyone because diversity also involves allowing for, or rather I don't want to use the word allow, but receiving what people bring to you with openness and we choose on the basis of what we see relevant and important to the moment. So, so yes, there are writers, I believe, sometimes for good reason, but I don't believe that a writer should, for bad reason, stay away from writing what you believe in. And I also know people like that who I know they have a lot they want to say, but they cannot and they don't want to. But as Kirsten recently shared in, because he pub- she published this recent book with us, right? She's, she said that you, you have to, because otherwise pragmatic resistance become more pragmatic than resistance. Yeah. So I think that's from my perspective. I, I'm sure Alfred will have a lot of stories. <laughs> <laughs> yeah actually i mean first of all i think that all works of art and all works of literature are political it's whether or not you want to be self-consciously political about it right so when i say that i mean even if let's say you you say oh i want to write about the the landscape or i want to write about my 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 holiday or something like that but there will be a politics to it. it 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 is political because you are a political being in a political context. And I, one of the poems that I really love is by this poet called Adrienne Rich from the States. And in one of her poems, she talks about how if you're going to write about someone who's braiding another woman's hair, you should know what kind of braid it is. And then she goes on and then she says, you should also write about what other things happen in that country? Yeah. So I, I always feel people who say that, oh, I'm not political at all. Or I don't produce political stuff. It's very strange for me, especially if they, if it's clear to me that it's quite political. For people to not say someone like Edwin Tambu, who is one of our pioneer poets, when they say he's not a political poet, I find that really quite hard to accept because you know, there are all these panegyrics to Lee Kuan Yew. And, and, and I think it's something that, it's, it's this rhetorical maneuver we have in Singapore where for some reason, you're only political if you're anti-establishment. But if you're an establishment person, somehow or the other, your, your, your politics is hidden in plain sight. Yeah. 
So I, I, I'm always a little bit wary when people say that they don't write political stuff. And I'm also wary of the argument that somehow or the other, if we are consciously writing political works, somehow or the other, it, it undermines the art. Yeah. That there's somehow or the other, that mm-hmm. there's this zero-sum game between politics and aesthetics. And I have so many examples of, of works that I find have got great artistic merit but at the same time, are also political works. Uh, at the same time also, there are, like, people have trot out an example, Pablo Neruda, who writes beautiful, for example, love poetry, but then when he writes his communist poetry, mm-hmm. people are like, they're just like, agitprop, or they're just pamphleteering and all that. And, and that's true, but that's Neruda, maybe, right? And maybe he has not been able to find a kind of like point of reconciliation between his politics and his aesthetics. But at the same time, there are many yeah, writers who are able to write political works, self-consciously political works of, yeah, of, of artistic excellence. Yeah. I had a Maybe. quick follow-up, oh, right, which is, yeah. and I'll give you some time to think about it, then we can switch to sure. the new one. We mm-hmm. talked about the political nature of arts and publishing in terms of writing. What I'm also mm-hmm. curious about is, we talk about external controls and funding and all these things, but what I'm curious about is, Internally as well, to what extent do you as a publisher, Kagan, right, and Elfian, you as a writer and, and playwright, mm-hmm. kind of self-censor, right? So mm-hmm. it's always easier when the boundaries mm-hmm. are set. You can't cross this line. You can't do these things. But mm-hmm. what goes through your mind, I'm curious in terms of, can this, mm-hmm. what do I tell this popular writer? What do I tell this writer? <laughs> How do I choose these things? Am I staying within the lines? How does it go around for you, right? So that's my curiosity. I like this question because I feel that I, okay, I like watching cooking shows, right? So especially those, you start to see all the human dynamics and all the like psychology of competition and people are always trying to push things the edgy way, right? And if you go off, it is really bad. So this question is like that, isn't it? It's like, how much can you push? Yeah. And But I, I find that most of the times, right, I feel you can do good work, you can do good art by staying within your comfort zone, probably good in the sense that it will be predictable, but there's a standard, probably even professional. But I think the wonderful things that blow your mind, right, are things that, happen when you really push yeah and there's a risk it can always go wrong that's why it is never easy yeah. so i mean i have to say that i really enjoyed hotel i watched hotel i feel it's the best play i've watched in singapore really so i really love that so i'm sure Elfian, i don't think it's a walk in the park that play how long did you take to write that thing i'm reading it on the page and it's also wow it reads so well so so i mean i want to praise elfin because i want to encourage the listener out there when you are doing things and you want to really make it special there will always be risks to take and so the publisher the best we can do is to accompany this person, isn't it? So if the person is pushing, we cannot play the sensor to this person. Yeah, We have to go. So uh, I think this is also tied to a contract discussion that 
our team had at Ethos, we took out this term, which is always a boilerplate thing, like blah, 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 the author is responsible for libelous, blah, 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 things that you write. Why did we take that out? Yeah. If we are publishing the work, we have to already agree with the work, right? So why are we passing the buck back to the author? The only thing we remained that we retained was it has to be your work. You staked your life on this work. So you better not be a plagiarizer because we won't be able to protect that. And we don't want to take responsibility for that. But when we put out a work, if it offends, we have already thought about it with the author. This is the kind of publisher that we want to be. So I, I would say that's my response to censorship because who knows what may come our way. It's going to be unfamiliar. How do I know whether things will fall within censorship guidelines? I have no idea. In fact, I'm hoping that I'll be challenged on that ground one of these days more often than not, right? So so that's my take on censorship from the publishing house's perspective. Yeah. As for me, I used to have quite a facetious answer to this. But actually it's facetious, but at the same time, meaningful to me, where I will just tell young writers, just write whatever you want and don't self-censor because there's a professional censor out there who's being paid to do it. Why are you doing their jobs for them? Right? Let it land on their table. Let them deal with it. And what's more importantly, if you withhold all these things that you really want to write, then the censors have no idea what people are really writing and thinking out there. So don't preempt them. It's very important. And also the thing about self-censorship is that once you start doing it, I really believe on a very psychological level, right? It, it can be very corrosive. The minute you allow that cock to enter your head, right? So this is a term, I think, by Gustav Bowl, he talks about cock in the head. And then I think you you start to lose a few things uh, as a writer, that, that freedom of imagination. Yeah? And, and also, most importantly, and this is, comes from a very recent example. So Joel Tan wrote a play called oh God is a Woman. And we had a couple of meetings with IMDA. So it's a play that lampoons, it's a piece of satire that makes fun of the culture wars in Singapore. It skewers both sides of the divide, the huffy conservatives who are always like writing complaint letters. And then on the other hand, it also roasts all the activists and, and artists and all that who believe that by running their boycotts and campaigns, they feel that they might have more influence than they actually do, right? So mm -hmm. no one is spared. It's really equal of opposite satire. But we went to IMDA and this was really interesting for me because before the meeting, me and Ivan Haynes, so Joel unfortunately was not in town, he was in the UK. Uh, we're looking through the script and we're like trying to flag, okay, maybe it's... And then when we actually went for the meeting, none of the stuff that we thought <laughs> they would... Flag were even mentioned. And in fact, they focus on really bizarre, really random things. Yeah. And then for me, it just goes to show that, oh, actually, you'll never be able to, to second guess them because the exercise of censorship is number one, subjective, number two, arbitrary. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you might as well just go all the way and see what's what these people are got are gonna be offended by or, or what concerns they might raise. And it's always projecting, I feel, and you just have to walk them back from that ledge. It's always this whole hypothetical, oh, what if there's this person from a certain segment of society? And it was so funny, right? Because this is a play where it's very clear some of the characters are Christian conservatives. <laughs> during that meeting they were just kind of like tiptoeing around and saying oh certain segments of 
And what about that? I got so annoyed and I said, which segments? Can we, we can't have these conversations if we don't spell this thing out. Do you mean Christians? Okay, Christians, great. Okay, let's get there. Okay, but we do know that this play, these are Christian individuals, right? If there's anyone who's being skewered, it's these particular individuals. It's not Christianity as a whole. And so you have to tell, yeah. And I feel that those kinds of engagement sessions are also very important because they came back mm-hmm. to us, second meeting, and they actually told us, oh, thank you for sharing with us how you would actually defend the work if anyone complained that has been very useful for us. And there's a part of me which is like, oh my God, did we did we have to school you on this? I mean, do, do you <laughs> not have an answer because sometimes these complaints they are frivolous they are vexatious and if you've got certain kind of like rigorous protocols in place you would know how to answer number one it's a work of fiction this is satire satire uses irony exaggeration to point out human foibles right it's not supposed to be something that attacks particular religions whatever but yeah just these very exaggerated characters so anyway yeah so so i think to summarize don't self-censor. Yeah, just put it out there. Someone else is going to do it. And what you realize is that your own kind of like censorship clock or meter is going to be different from someone else's. Mm-hmm. So it, there's no point anyway. I'd like to also maybe bring in this part about censorship and editing. Because I find that maybe I'm trying to figure out, because editing in a sense, we have to edit a work and we are kind of also shaping the work with the author's grace and permission, right? So so how is that distinguished? And just now as Alfian was saying how it feels like to be censored when it feels vexatious, I think probably censorship is driven by anxiety and fear and all the negative kind of emotions. But editing is driven by like the desire to have an idea best understood. So it is realizing the vision of the author. And so in a way, a good editorial exercise is when the author feels that the editing work is empathetic, supportive. But if it starts to shade into, oh, I I feel that I'm being silenced, then I think that is kind of a dynamic that may mean censoring is happening and probably is bad relationship. So better not go for funding in such cases. <laughs> I, I want to add like a little caveat though, yeah? Because I know that when you sound yeah. like there's so much bravura about, oh, don't self-censor, <laughs> let other people censor. But I'm going to say that really sometimes when it comes to the crunch, so let's say the censors say, okay, if you do not take out this particular line or scene, we are not going to give you a license. And there is a very real possibility of suffering, say, a financial loss, Yeah then in those cases, really, I have to check my own privilege as someone who's in a, in a quite well-funded theater company, quite well-established, and maybe I can have a bigger risk appetite. Yeah, there, There's also an artistic director who has my back, etc. So I, I won't ever blame people who, at the end of the day, when, when they have to cross that bridge, make these kinds of difficult choices. Yeah, because I'm very aware sometimes and authoritarian societies is very hard. You you are presented with a lot of not ideal choices. Yeah. And and mm-hmm. I I will never call another artist a sellout, whatever they make these kinds of choices. Uh, I'll, I'll give you an example. Yeah. So there, there's this play called Off Center 
uh, by the Nestle Shea stage written by Shawn Mann, directed by Alvin Tan. And it was first produced, I believe, in 1993. So it was supposed to be commissioned by Ministry of Health. But when they saw the script, when they saw how critical it was for the mental health system, they decided to withdraw the funding. Yeah. And I think for TNS, they could have taken up certain what was considered objectionable scenes and then still have the funding. But they made the decision, okay, we, it's all right. We're still going to go ahead with the play. We, we believe the integrity of, of, of this work. We spent so much time and I think we stand by our research for this. So decided to go ahead and suffer financial loss. Yeah, and, and that's a decision they made at that point of time. And then many years later, it was a book that was proposed to be used for the, if I believe it's the O-levels, to be studied as a literature text. Right? One of the first, first ever uh, Singaporean texts to be accorded that status and honour. But there was a hitch, which was one of the characters who had depression talked about coming from Raffles Junior College. And in this particular case, MOE was like, oh, let's try not to target certain schools. For me, I, I came from RJC and I'm like, hello, it's an elite school. <laughs> what? Well, target, target it away. I mean, it is a pressure cooker, right? And this person who went through that particular system and also had parents who were very demanding, it's a whole cocktail that led to a certain depressive episode and breakdown. So the, the question was that, Either take that reference to Raffles Junior College, maybe fictionalize it, but then you lose that opportunity for this book to be studied in schools, right? And possibly open up conversations about mental health in the classroom. Or you decide, no, it needs to be, we need to, to, to have RGC there because it does reflect a certain reality. So I think the decision was made, okay, maybe we don't mention RGC. And I respect that for that decision as well, because I think on balance, they probably decided that having this accessible to students and having them talk about mental health maybe outweighed yeah, that kind of verisimilitude that they were aiming for artistically. And I guess it, it didn't kind of cause the plot and the characterizations to be so badly yeah. affected yes. at all, right? Yeah. So it's, I, I totally right. see what so, you're So we are always yeah. making these kinds yeah. of calculations yeah. all the time. And, and we, we have to decide whether these <laughs> kinds of changes are going to affect the integrity of the whole, right? Yeah. 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 I'm very glad you brought these complications into the process because I think, Alfian, your experiences and what I've seen in publishing, the, these decisions are not so cookie cutter. And then there are so many influencings and sometimes you have to be strategic oh, because you want to have this book in the syllabus. I mean, that's so important for Off-Center to enter MOE yeah. syllabus. Mm-hmm. I'm so glad they did that. Yeah. Yeah. And I have to say also sometimes, I don't know, I mean, <laughs> in the absence of, as I mentioned just now, a certain kind of like quite clear cut principles about what you're going to support, etc. Right. Sometimes you kind of rely on social capital, you rely on maybe who are the enlightened collaborators that you might have. Yeah. So one of the things that I'm, I feel really so proud about is the fact that when Ethos published Telltale, 11 uh. short stories, yeah, there is one of my stories inside and it's called 13 Ways of Looking at a Hanging. And it's a yeah. short story that looks at the death penalty. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard that it was approved, to be in that book, I, I was really quite surprised. And, and many years later, 
I got a note from someone who said, oh, I, I studied Telltale as a literature text in school. And I just really want to tell you that you, it made me rethink my own position on the death penalty. Yeah. And that was really very meaningful yeah, for me. Um, yeah, it's, it's all these people who somehow are your allies in the system. Yeah, and I never think that it's always oppositional. I never think that whatever the system is, it's just monolithic, right? So I think we just need to cultivate that with like continual dialogue. I had a question on literature as a form of civic engagement compared to advocacy campaigns, town halls, etc. But both of you have really like answer that question really well in this conversation. So I want to tweak it a little bit. And I'm thinking of that piece you shared earlier, Alfian, about the arts community e-group, mm. which was yep. very interesting because I never I've never heard of it before. So I was really right. very interested to read about that. So right. I'm going to tweak mm. my question a little bit. So to ask mm. you, how do you think the sing lit or the wider arts community itself mm. can serve yeah. as effective mode of civic engagement in society? Oh my gosh, that's <laughs> such a huge question. <laughs> oh my goodness. I feel, right, there are different degrees of politicization among different writers. And it's not, it's not fair to generalize that, that there is an arts community and everyone is politicized and everyone is invested in like freedom of expression issues and all that, yeah? Uh, I do remember one sort of like just visiting different arts companies and I realized when it comes to censorship, it's not something that a lot of us experience equally. It's really kind of like differential experience of censorship and that will kind of politicize us differently. So when I talk to dancers, for example, right? And for them, they'll say, oh, what we're fighting against is like stuff like wanting nudity on stage. <laughs> so. <laughs> and I'm not dismissing that. And I, th I think that's really a, a valid thing that comes from that form. But it's very different, for example, for a playwright who has to deal with that. There are these things that I can write, I can touch on homosexuality, I can touch on race, religion, etc. So I feel like I kind of like straddle both like the literary as well as the, the theater community. But I think because of, of a specific history uh, within the theater community, I would say it's a lot more politicized. There have been much more censorship battles. We have had to secure a performing license, for example, every time we need to, to put out a play, we have to send it mm. for vetting. And writers don't need to at all. So there's been different degrees of politicization when it comes to our own history as well. If you look at the pioneer theater makers in Singapore, we're talking about like Ko Pao Kun, who mm -hmm. was arrested under the ISD in 1976, I think spent at least like four years we're talking about the third stage, which in 1987, some of its members were accused of, of being part of the Marxist conspiracy, at least three or four of them. Yeah. So I think once we have this particular kind of political history as a theater maker, we recognize this as a kind of, of a lineage. Whereas I think if you look at in terms of literary history, a lot of the pioneer writers have been from within the system, especially from within the academy. So if you look at Evin Tambu, if you look at Ping, if you look at Arthur Yap, right? They were all teaching in NUS. Mm -hmm. So I, I'm not sure whether that particular generation, there were actually writers who were kind of like outside of the system, the same way that you could find theater makers who were, yeah. So I think because you have this quite different histories, you've also led to kind of like different scenes. Not to say that there aren't very political writers. There are people like Koji Leong. There are people like Jeremy Tiang. There are people like Amanda Liko. 
but they're all overseas. <laughs> right. Where are they right now? Uh, Kage, they're, they're in New York, no? New York. And uh, I think uh, Amanda <laughs> is currently in Berlin doing uh, a residency. Right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And people like Che Yu, who wrote Singapore's First Gay Play, he's, he's in the US, moved around LA, Chicago. Yeah. Mm. So, yeah, but... <laughs> That's it. Oh my God. The literary people are going to come after me. <laughs> They're going to go, Alpian says you're not political. Alpian says you write status quo poetry. No, like that. There that, that are, that are people like Cyril Wong, of course. Yeah. Who's been unapologetically queer. He's written about queer experiences, queer bodies in his work. Yeah. Jason Wee. Yeah. So there are. But I don't know. I, I think I'm just so used to the theater community that does their town halls and nominates arts NMPs and I know there's been some kind of like, yo why these theater people all are very vocal very extra look they're nominating Audrey Wong they're nominating Janice Ko they're nominating Kong Ying Luan and all is from the theater community but but at the same time we joined it to this but we are kind of like a very politicized community and that's to do with the nature of theater making this country yeah, I thought at this point, I am reminded of what Alfian earlier you said about whether or not you th- your work is political, it may really be the, your consciousness that is, that is at the heart of it. So I think, Isaac, your question about us community, to me, is also a question about society. I mean, how... As an individual, as a citizen, how conscious are you of your civic responsibilities? I mean, a lot of us, we have to benefit from the good work done by people who care about street lighting, who care about safety, Mm. I'll say open spaces for dialogue. We benefit from it, but somebody's got to do that work, right? So once you start to realize that such places are not something that come about naturally, then you start to see Mm. in my own respective position, what can I do? And I think writers and also artists, those who decide to say something about it, they make use of their medium in fantastical ways, which allow you to then entertain ideas about what it could mean. And so they open up that space for the rest of us to explore and discover. So so I think really the question about civic engagement is one that applies to everyone. And it's only when your consciousness starts to take root. And I do hope that we start to also see ourselves as being interdependent. Yeah, even politicians, I think they have to thank the arts and culture scene for creating this kind of like a space which is more livable in the what 2000s when we were touted to be a renaissance city oh the arts were like the like what branding for singapore and all so until the they realize that they only want the money but they don't want the criticism then the artist then again started to become <laughs> kind of a scary person a boogeyman mm. so yeah and on that note, because what you said and 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 Kage, that was kind of reflective of the conversation we had. I feel like we can go on for two, three, four hours talking about it. It's probably what happens behind the scenes as well. You've taken us through 
a discussion about arts and publishing vis-a-vis political mm-hmm. participation and civil engagement. I think yeah. you starting us off, Kagi, in the beginning about being exposed to the unfamiliar power as a self-serving dynamic, those stood out. And then we talked about mm-hmm. using those modalities to provoke more conversation and action. And Alfian, you talked about how, at least from the state's perspective, often over often overestimating the artist and underestimating um, the, the audience and their agency and ending off with, I brought us up down that rabbit hole about censorship and self-censorship, but I think Kagi really summed it up with the inter- interdependence between the individual, the state, politicians and society as well. And I, Isaac and I were really excited to have the both of you on. We were trying to schedule a time for all of us and we finally got you on. So I Thanks really, so much. really enjoyed the yeah. conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Oh, it's lovely. Yes. Thanks so Thank much you. for having us. Yeah. yeah. And, and can I also just say one thing, right? Yeah. <laughs> where I feel that in many societies, where writers and artists, they're not afraid to take on this position as a public intellectual. And I also want to say to both of you, who are hosting this podcast. <laughs> I don't know whether it's from modesty or like maybe Nola or, or, or a fear of like, oh, I shouldn't, I don't be targeted or whatever. But I think what you're doing is what public intellectuals do, which is really to put all these ideas out there to shape or, or even lead certain conversations. Because I, th- I think that's really, really all just a part of a very thriving democracy, right? You're just expanding democratic space, just having a lot of, of interesting voices into the mix. Yeah. And I think I think it's that whole shadow about the Catherine Lim affair that's making us kind of like sometimes a bit cautious about going there because there'll always be that challenge is like, oh, if you have something political to say, whatever, then you join politics. And then after that, you campaign and try to win people to your cause, right? But that's such a flawed argument. Everyone can be involved in politics or have political discussions and it's not something just only meant for politicians yeah so i just put that out there that you know people should Mm, thank you yeah (laughs) and should recognize that right yeah Yeah. thanks so much for to both of you indeed yeah